From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A new survey shows most Colorado teens know vaping is risky, but many do it anyway. And Denver swept an encampment of people experiencing homelessness near Maury Middle School. We'll speak with a reporter who was there. Then, in rural southwest Colorado, farmers saddled up their horses to talk with neighbors until the telephone arrived in 1920. It was a way bigger thing for the people than people realized. You was in touch with the world. Farmers Telephone celebrates its 100th anniversary. Plus, a new novel explores what happens when victims of crimes fall through the cracks on Native American reservations. So the problem is, is on Native American reservations, you have overlapping jurisdictions between the federal government, state governments, and tribal governments, and they overlap and conflict. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Will. The rate of teen vaping in Colorado is among the nation's highest. A new survey by the state health department finds those sky-high rates haven't budged in the last couple of years. But as CPR health reporter John Daly explains, policymakers are trying to reverse that trend. In the before times, pre-COVID-19, teen vaping and an outbreak of lung illness looked something like public health enemy number one. The Centers for Disease Control is warning people to stop using e-cigarettes. A new study found e-cigarettes can potentially release significant amounts of toxic metals. The U.S. Surgeon General has officially declared e-cigarettes an epidemic with young Americans. Teens in droves were consuming nicotine via cheap, sleek, discreet devices like Juuls, or more recently, disposables like the brand Puff Bar. A new biannual survey finds that roughly one in four Colorado teens vape regularly at least once in the prior month. That's no surprise to 17-year-old Alden Burt. Well, it's pretty jarring. Pretty much everybody I know and hang out with vapes or is addicted to nicotine. Burt is a rising senior at Gunnison High, a school of about 400 students. He tried vaping for the first time during the summer before ninth grade, Right around when vaping took off in Colorado, Bert remembers walking around town with friends, experimenting with a vape pen. We weren't vaping to vape. We were vaping to buzz. He and his friends developed a steady habit, like many of his classmates, even though he worries about the risks to his mental and physical health. You can do it literally anywhere, and there's no smell, and it's like a lot, a lot of nicotine like straight into your brain whenever you want it. The new survey finds Bert shares that in common with a lot of teens. The number of Colorado teens who perceived vaping as risky shot up to more than 7 in 10. But Bert says news of lung illnesses hasn't seemed to change behavior. He thinks that's because many teens rely on vaping to self-medicate. A lot of kids are just kind of sad. With high school, it's you get really stressed out having like a vape on you. It's like a weird stress reliever that a lot of kids choose, I guess, because it's the easiest thing there that you can like rebel and have and like feel like you satisfy your teenage angst. The survey, along with other research, also finds that many teens have experiences like Bert. Kids often start vaping in middle school. And use grows through high school, and it often leads to smoking conventional cigarettes. Advocates like Jake Williams with Healthier Colorado say weak laws paved the way to this crisis. To date, it's been pretty much the Wild West when it comes to 
selling these products. And kids have walked through that open door. Policymakers launched a slew of reforms in the past couple of years, raising the legal age to purchase tobacco to 21 and a statewide tobacco licensure law. Greer Bailey heads a group representing 2,000 convenience stores. He says those laws don't address the main way teens get vape devices, social sales, older youth buying for younger. I mean, it's a lot like alcohol, right? I mean, there's not a bunch of 16, 17 year olds walking into liquor stores and, and buying alcohol. They get it from social sources. The vast majority of kids aren't getting it from us. Lawmakers hope other proposals will have an impact. They sent a measure to the fall ballot to impose taxes on vaping products and raise the state's tobacco tax. Dr. Yadira Caraveo, a pediatrician and state lawmaker, says the goal is to fund quit programs and discourage kids from buying vape products. The point of this is to make a group that is price sensitive less prone to using these products. Back in Gunnison, Alden Burt, a budding singer-songwriter, strums his guitar. He says his relationship with vaping changed dramatically this spring. When the pandemic hit, he was quarantined at home, away from his friends. He stopped vaping and hasn't touched it in months. I'm not sure where that'll head when things get back to normal, but we'll see. I don't want to continue, and I don't think I will, like in the long run. But I am still in high school, you know, and it's it's there. Bert says the break has worked for him. But he still has deep concerns about his generation's fascination with, and for many, addiction to vaping, a trend in Colorado showing no sign of dissipating. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Joining us now, CPR health reporter John Daly and lung expert Dr. Robin Dieterding. She's in charge of pulmonary pediatric medicine at Children's Hospital Colorado. Dr. Dieterding, the survey that we heard John talk about here was actually taken in 2019. The results were released Monday. It showed about one in four Colorado teenagers vape, and that's basically flat compared to the survey two years ago. What's your biggest concern seeing these high numbers being sustained now over several years? Well, it certainly shows that we have a lot of work still to do. We've been talking a lot about this. I think kids are more aware. But it's also uh, concerning that it's been more integrated in their culture in a consistent manner, even though they may know the risk. So uh, I think peer pressure, I think understanding that even if it's harmful for them, it's still something they want to do. And the fact that some of them wanted to quit is equally worrisome because it means They're addicted. So we have our work cut out for us, and it's still way too high. Now, I'll point out that as of the previous survey a couple of years ago, Colorado ranked number one in the nation in vaping, and we'll get that new national ranking soon. What in the new state data do you consider encouraging? Well, I think it's encouraging that uh, the teens now know or at least understand that vaping is not just like vaping color water. I think for a long time they thought it wasn't harmful. Everybody was doing it. And so some of the the discussions, some of the education measures that that have gone on have made a difference, but they haven't impacted the level. So, you know, we have to attack this a different way, continue educating, but implement programs that really get at stopping this. And John Daly, CPR health reporter, that sounds like a big shift in what these kids are thinking, knowing that it's risky. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that number went up to about seven out of 10 from about uh, half. And, you know, 
One of the experts that I talked to said that this was a, a really large shift, one of the biggest changes in attitudes that they'd seen in public health. So uh, it does seem like the messages may be getting through better than they had before. And Robin, what would you describe the health risks being? In the past, you've likened it to conducting a chemistry experiment inside the lungs, right? Well, I still stand by that statement. I think we don't know what people are inhaling. I think we're learning that the kids are inhaling marijuana more. And people need to understand that these small particles move deep into the lung in areas of the lung that are very fragile, that can be damaged in a short term or in a long-term situation. So I worry that we're setting up this generation for lifelong health risk related to their lungs. Heavy metals, nicotine, products and ingredients that we don't even understand what they do to the lung. This is not a long-term good outcome for this generation. Now, vaping advocates, including manufacturers, vape shops, et cetera, they argue that their products are safe, and they also say that their products are not made for kids but for adults to help adults quit smoking. Your take? Well, um, I think the data would point out that, that kids kids are the ones doing it and that adults do it far less. And I, uh, I can't make that statement about being safe. In fact, we are on just on the very tip of understanding what's happening in the lung when, when people vape. This is a new research area. We're active in that on our campus in our section, trying to understand what happens. So if the vape shops think they know it's safe, I think they're... Uh, way out in front of the scientists, because I don't think the scientists and the physicians think it's safe. And John, the state has actually taken action to try to get kids to smoke less, right? Or to use vapes less. Sure, there's been a number of things on the policy level, and then uh, addressing what uh, Dr. Dieterding was just talking about. uh, The company Juul, which is uh, the industry leader, at least it has been in the last uh, few years, you know, they're getting sued by many states, including recently the state of Colorado. The attorney general's office announced that it was suing Juul over allegations of deceptively targeted, targeting teens with their marketing. And that this is something that Juul denies. Uh, I think that we will be hearing more as these court cases unfold about uh, company, about actions the company may have taken, about internal discussions uh, there at the company. Um, especially if these uh, cases go to trial. So so we'll see what information we learn. I, I do think we're going to know a lot more about this uh, in the, the coming years. And John, what stands out to you about the survey data? Well, you know, uh, Dr. Dieterding referenced this a little bit. So among students who vaped regularly, more than half said they tried to quit in the past year. And that suggests that uh, high schoolers who are using this that most want to quit. That's really interesting. It, su- it suggests that a lot of them are not happy to be vaping. We also know that quitting is really hard to do and that there really just aren't enough services to help uh, young people quit uh vaping. There is a tobacco tax proposal that'll be on the ballot in the in the fall that would raise money for that. There's efforts to to get more money for quit services. But quitting is a is a really tough thing. And it's interesting that a lot of uh, young folks uh, do seem to want to quit. Uh, and and it, it shows up in the data. And John, Dr. Dieterding mentioned that more kids vape than adults. Do we know how many more kids vape compared to adults? Yeah, I checked with the state health department about that. So according to this new survey, about a quarter of high schoolers vape regularly. 
And that compares with about 8% of adults. And again, that's according to data from the state health department. So the, the bottom line is that teens in Colorado vape at a much higher rate than adults. It looks like about three times as high at this point. And does the survey say anything about the number of teens who are addicted to vaping? Uh, Not directly, but one in five students who regularly vape reported having intolerable cravings after a few hours, uh, and that would seem to indicate some serious symptoms that that go along with addiction. And Robin, the survey also spotlighted dabbing, a way of inhaling potent, highly concentrated THC. Among those in the survey who use pot regularly, more than half said that they dabbed, and that's up a uh, a third from two years ago. What are the medical implications of that? Well, I'm very worried about this. We we don't understand how marijuana uh, getting into the lung impacts the lung. We know that dabbing has a very high concentration of THC, the, the chemical that makes you high, that the kids like. That's what they want to, that's why they're smoking it. We have to understand a lot more about marijuana and we're way behind the curve about understanding what that does to our brain, what it does to the lungs. So we're playing catch up in that area. And the fact that they're doing it more has me even more concerned because it's very high in concentration. The kids tell me that uh, dabbing doesn't have a smell and that it takes very little. And so they can dab undetected, unlike smoking marijuana. So uh, they're gravitating in that way, I think. And as John's story mentioned last fall, there was a surge in cases of teens who vaped getting sick, even dying from vaping-related illnesses. It was determined most cases were thought to be caused by an addictive, by rather by an additive containing THC. What did you learn from that outbreak? So that was a very scary outbreak, and I, I think it taught us that when you put chemicals inside your lung that you don't really understand bad things can happen. And in fact, in that case, people died and people injured their lung at all ages. We don't know all the chemicals in these these products and these off-label street drugs are even more uh, likely to contain these chemicals. So we we actually think it's probably out there lower levels uh, than before, but still out there. And it tells us that when we don't understand what goes in your lungs, that uh, you could be unsafe. And what impact do you think that vaping or smoking has on one's chances of catching COVID-19 or fighting it off if you get it? Does vaping make a young person or anyone potentially more at risk? Well, I think that's a great question. And uh, I don't think we understand it totally, but we do believe that any that lowering uh, your lungs immunity and inhaling products into your lung, whether it be nicotine, smoking, or vaping, does increase the chance for a more severe COVID reaction. That's what we believe. We're actually uh, doing research on campus right now, looking at the effects of, of vaping and then COVID on top of that. So the data will be forthcoming, but it's an active question. And it's one that I think people should err on the side of safety. COVID can impact everybody, teenagers, once you get uh, really in the teen years, begin to act like adults and, and COVID can, can hurt you. Vaping is not anything I would do. And is there a recipe for reversing this overall team vaping trend? I ask you this. We've got about 30 seconds left. I think we need programs. I think the data illustrates more to me than ever before that even if they understand there's risk, 
They have social pressure. They may already be addicted. We need programs to help them get off, help them deal with the peer pressure around these uh, products. And and the way that's going to happen is if we have funding to develop these programs. We're actively working at Children's Hospital to develop a program and identify teens, get them in to help so that they have structure and ways to deal with these pressures. They want to quit. They're saying they want to quit. We need to help them quit in a structured way. Thank you both so much for joining me. You bet. That's Dr. Robin Robin Dieterding from Children's Hospital Colorado and CPR health reporter John Daly. People experiencing homelessness have camped near Maury Middle School for months. At one point, more than 100 people were living there. There were about 30 people still around Wednesday when sanitation and health department workers, police, school security, and park rangers arrived to clear the encampment. Denverite's Donna Bryson was there. Hi, Donna. Hi. The sweep, it began at daybreak on Wednesday. What did you see when you arrived? Well, it was pretty well underway by the time I got there. The police had strung up their yellow caution tape all around the block where the school sits. Um, people were still packing up, some people were still packing up their tents and other belongings. Tarps, blankets, food, barbecue grills, bikes, and a lot of other stuff. And some people had already set up new camps nearby. And this wasn't a surprise to the people camped near, near Maury Middle School, was it? Absolutely not. Uh, back at the start of July, when Mayor Michael Hancock said he had accepted the idea of sanctioned camping, he said that that would provide an alternative, which might permit, um, it's an alternative that some people call safe outdoor spaces, and that would allow the city to be able to step up enforcement to control unsanctioned camping. And he said then that his priorities included the camps at the park opposite the Capitol and at Maury. We still don't have sanctioned camping, but the park across from the Capitol was cleared last week and Wednesday, Maury. And Antoinette Medina is one of the people experiencing homelessness that you met around Maury. What did she tell you about her situation? Well, she's one of many people I've met who do not want to go to a shelter, and there are a lot of reasons for this. Uh, In Medina's case, she worries about the crowding and she fears contracting a disease. Uh, She also told me that she's been on a wait list for housing for almost a year. And long waits for affordable housing are something I hear about a lot as well. And why did the city say that it needed to clear the encampment? And where did it advise people to go? The city's public health department was in charge on Wednesday. And those public health officials cite public health risk, piles of trash, human waste, needles. The city, other departments in the city, the housing department and some of the city's partners and agencies that support homelessness are, were out there for weeks uh, trying to connect people to alternatives. Shelters seem to be the main alternative. Also hotel rooms. The city has a, uh, about 800 hotel rooms for people experiencing homelessness who are affected by COVID. Uh, there were attempts to connect people to housing. That's very difficult. I think I've heard that one person was moved into an apartment from Maury, and I heard that from the city. And you also spoke with Marcio Johnson, who was living in the Maury encampment. What did he tell you about where he planned to go? As I said, the outreach workers have been out there for a while. And last week, outreach workers from a group that works with people who have um, been incarcerated spoke to Johnson, spoke to Mr. Johnson. And he seemed quite intrigued. They have a headquarters in Sunnyside. And he was talking on Wednesday about um, moving his camp near that headquarters. He's a tinkerer. He grew up as a teenager working on cars, and now he's been working on bikes, scavenging parts and building bikes out of them. And he thought some of the people 
working with this nonprofit or some of the people being helped by this nonprofit might need a bike as a means of transportation, and he could help provide that. Now, this encampment, it attracted the attention and frustration of some people who live in apartments and condos nearby over the last few months. They formed a nonprofit called the Mori Residents Coalition Corps. Tell me more about what they wanted and what they'll do now that the encampment is gone. Well, even long before this uh, coalition was formed, I covered a town hall about Mori that Councilman Chris Hines held in July, and it was clear people had been expressing frustrations and concerns for some time even before that. The neighbors did not feel the city was responding, and the Maury Residents Coalition kind of started a GoFundMe campaign to raise money to hire a lawyer to help them understand what legal steps they could take to get the city to respond. I spoke to one of the organizers Wednesday after the camp after the camp clearance had begun, and he said, one, he appreciated what the city had done, including the outrage that, that preceded that clearance, And uh, but he still thinks this organization is necessary. He sees homelessness as an ongoing issue that the neighbor would ha- neighbors will have to address. Just a matter of rethinking what they're going to do now that the uh, public health department has stepped in, but it sounds like they still think they need a lawyer. And we've also seen protests of sweeps, like the sweep at the encampment in Denver's Lincoln Memorial Park last week. Organizations that support people experiencing homelessness had criticized that cleanup. Were there protests at Maury Wednesday? I saw a small group of protesters when I got there Wednesday. Uh, City workers had started very early, earlier than as usual when they do a cleanup like this, and the operation was pretty much over by the time the protesters arrived. And did you have the sense that the city changed the way it approached the Maury sweep after the protests at Lincoln Memorial Park? Uh, Chris Connor is the city housing department official in charge of addressing homelessness, and he told me that security was an issue at, at Lincoln Memorial in a way it was not at Maury, though people living near Maury say crime was a problem there, too. Connor did say that he learned from Lincoln Memorial that sending a big tourist-style bus was perhaps not the best way to persuade people to go to shelters. They used smaller buses from service providers that people living on the streets would be familiar with at Maury, but still it appears that very few people took up the offer of a ride to a shelter. And are these cleanups making a difference in the problem, or is it just moving camps around the city? Certainly what I saw yesterday, as you, as you walk toward Maury, you can see that people spilled out from Maury toward other parts of Capitol Hill, maybe even further further afield in the city. The answer here is housing. It's a tough answer. Thank you so much, Donna. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's Denverites housing and hunger reporter Donna Bryson. You can read her reporting about Denver's sweeps of encampments at denverite.com. When we come back, how telephones change the state's rural southwest communities. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Together, we've been transitioning to a new normal, and we all have a lot of questions. Your support means you, your friends, and your neighbors will continue to have access to CPR's trustworthy coverage of today's stories. Your membership ensures that this valuable community resource for news and music remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. There are many ways to give, including monthly, as an Evergreen member. Thank you for your support at CPR.org. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. In 1920, dryland bean farmers around the speck of a town called Pleasant View were tired of having to saddle up horses and travel to communicate with neighbors. So they started a telephone company. It, it was basically just manual to, to get from uh, one place to the other. When you stop and think about that, you can see how much a telephone made a world of difference. And, you know, it, it wasn't for visiting. People didn't visit over the phone like they do now. And it was basically a source of 
communication and contact. It was a way bigger thing for the people than, than people realized. You was in touch with the world. That's Bessie White in a recent recording about the telephone company's history. She's about to turn 90, and she's lived near Pleasant View most of her life. After 100 years, Farmer's Telephone is still going strong in southwest Colorado, where modern technology fuels its growth. Farmer's general manager, Terry Hines, joins us from Pleasant View. Welcome, Terry. Good morning, Avery. Thanks for having me today. When Farmer's Telephone started, I understand those bean farmers had to put up their own poles, string their own wires, and pitch in a whopping $25 to fund the company. Was that early system a crazy patchwork of cedar posts and bailing wire, or was it more sophisticated than that? I think it probably was a little bit of both, kind of in the middle. But uh, certainly they had a purpose. Uh, they needed the communications, as uh, as you heard, Bessie. She's one of my current board members as well. And uh, it, it was it was critical. Um, you know, neighbors had to help neighbors. Uh, we didn't have the, the robust communications back then that we have now. So, uh, you know, it was definitely a purpose, and uh, we have grown upon that, and we serve the communities quite well. And maybe you could give us a little geography lesson here about your area of Colorado. Um, there's that neighboring town of Cajon. There are, the other closest town is Yellow Jacket. Describe this out-of-the-way piece of Colorado for those of us who have never been there. You bet. So if you're familiar with the Four Corners, we're, we're nestled down in the Four Corners. Our, our exchange um, uh, is a little north of uh, Cortez. Though we do offer, we have expanded services into Cortez, and pretty soon Dolores and Lewis actually hopefully launch next week. But with that said, uh, you know if you come up in Pleasant View is about 20 miles um, north of, of Cortez. Um, you know we're kind of nestled between, you know, kind of where the mountains start and the high high desert plains out there. So our exchange starts just north of Lewis and goes all the way up to Dove Creek. Um, in uh, in there, and most of it uh, is you know the dryland bean farming. And can you give us an example of how the introduction of the telephone in rural Colorado really changed people's lives? Oh, absolutely. So you know when you needed help, or you know you you were injured or whatnot, uh, your only recourse was jump on a horse and and get over there um, without help. So you may be you know, five miles from the next ranch down the way. So, you know, um, you didn't have immediate uh, immediate action. Um, with that said, you know, a lot of the farmers used it for that. But also, you know, if they're raising a barn, they would get on and they would call their neighbors and all the neighbors would come and, and kind of help them. And uh, that uh, that eliminated you having to, you know, ride your horse or, or your wagon over to, you know, uh, uh, your neighboring ranches out there. So, it really kind of revolutionized the way they were, um, you know, the way they lived, you know, as any emergencies or, or whatnot that was kind of vital to, you know, survival back then when we don't have the conveniences we do today. And you're called Farmer's Telephone. Clearly your first customers were farmers. Is that still what people are doing in that part of the state? Absolutely. Um, you know, we don't have a, a huge amount of business up there. It's mostly, you know, dry land and uh and irrigated farming uh, now that we have the irrigation system out here. So, um, yeah, that's kind of what we do, and, and we're pretty darn good at it. In Pleasant View, it actually has a telephone museum. It's open to the public. What's displayed there? 
Yeah, I tell you, that was that was actually our original, our first office. Uh, we we kind of sold it and then brought it back. But out there, we we have uh, you know some of our old technology. You know, early on, it was a cord board or the the patch cord uh, panel. So uh, one would ring into the operator, and she would connect them to the that they wanted to talk to. Uh, originally, of course, party lines and whatnot. But we have we have old telephones, some of the old insulators that uh, uh, many of us, uh, yeah, old, older uh, people, really understand, really remember those insulators and whatnot were very important to keep the, the lines from, from grounding out and whatnot. Uh, we also have some of the old telephones, and we have some of the old ledgers uh, from when we started the, the telephone company and uh you know, some of the stock information and, and all that. So um, just pictures and memorabilia of uh, yesterday's past. Now, Farmer's Telephone, you mentioned that party line, but it began adding improvements in the 1930s. One of the first was worldwide long-distance calling. Why was it important for rural bean farmers to be able to make international calls then? Yeah, if you think about, uh, you know, these, some of these small farming communities, you actually needed access to different equipment and, and things that would actually improve your life. But how, how do you reach out to those guys short of uh, jumping in a car and running across the country? Plus, you know, as as many of us know all too well, our children always don't stay on the farm, so that allowed us to communicate with our families, but also allowed us uh, – uh, access to equipment that you ordinarily wouldn't be able to, to find in this quadrant of the of the country. And if we leap forward to the digital age, landlines are still popular in your area, but you also offer satellite internet, DSL, fiber optic broadband, and dial-up internet. How did a tiny company like yours hang on and even grow in an era of telecom behemoths? Well, um, you're always going. You're always going to need communications, and that's that's you know kind of what uh, what we're all about. But uh, you know, early on, we we do get a little support from uh, from the government uh, in some of the RUS loans. I'm happy to say that since I've been here, we've been able to pay those off. We're completely debt free. But really, it's a commitment to the the community. We uh, we reinvest. Uh, uh, a lot of our profits to make sure that we can can provide those enhanced services, very much like what we have in in the big cities these days. Uh, we do have fiber to the home, and we can give you up to a gig of service, which uh, allows people, especially you know, farmers are all work from home. So even with the COVID, a lot of that didn't change for for a lot of those folks out there. But very important that they still have those lines of communication and and able to research. Um, you know, let's say if they have a uh, a blight or something in in you know some of the fields and stuff they're able to research and, and get that information so uh, we've been very dedicated to make sure that we uh, we service our community and and you know keep them keep them with the rest of the rest of the world on those products and services that we've you know come to really kind of account for in the cities but rural America is just as important I like the idea of farming as sort of the original work from home um how has the pandemic affected your business? Well, I tell you, we have probably been busier than we have in about 10 years. Um, very, very quickly, you know, we had a couple of school districts, uh, Montezuma County School District and Dolores County School District. They needed uh, to start their, you know, school from home. 
And uh, many of those families didn't have access to high-speed Internet. Uh, Dolores County called me and uh, asked me if we could uh, deploy some of our wireless technology out there. We very quickly came to an agreement, and and I deployed it out there, and those kids were able to continue their schoolwork. Uh, On a parallel path here in Cortez, we had some of the same problem in some of our lower-income neighborhoods. So I worked with, uh, with the school district and. We uh, deployed a couple of hotspots throughout uh, throughout Cortez where the kids could actually come in and download their homework and then uh, upload their homework when they were done hmm. uh, so they could uh, continue their schooling. So um, with that said, of course, everybody went to a work-at-home status, and so we upgraded a lot of those services to make sure that they had enough bandwidth to you know, attend their Zoom calls mm-hmm. or whatnot that they were needing out there as well. That's a lot so to do. We were, we've been busy. I bet. Thank you so much. Terry Hines is general manager of Farmers Telephone Company, which is celebrating 100 years in business this year. Summer is the season for county fairs, or at least it normally is. The threat of COVID-19 has canceled or postponed most of them. Others have continued by returning to their agricultural roots. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg took a trip recently to the revamped Mesa County Fair. The sheep and goats, pigs and cows have no idea the strange times we're living through. And something about hanging around their pens, more spaced out than normal in the shade of this covered outdoor arena, it feels like an invitation to forget about things for a while. The earnest young handlers help with that, too. This is my big boy spirit. Gentry McFarland's black steer, more than 1,100 pounds, chomps on hay behind her. This will be the nine-year-old's first time showing him or any animal at the Mesa County Fair. I'm totally pumped. And a little scared. Because I always get stage fright. Uh, he, he might feel the same way. <laughs> no, Spirit's a good boy. He, he, he's always there for me when I need him. Harold Stafford, also nine, brought two of his sheep. Bullet um, and Jack. And he's really excited about this chance to show them county commissioners only approved the fair in late May. I didn't think they were going to have one, you know, because of the coronavirus and stuff. But Colorado's agriculture commissioner deems livestock shows and sales essential. So the animal component of fairs all across the state can continue, with the permission of local health departments. We were very aware that when we were given the okay to do this, if we had a huge spike in cases, that we would get shut down. Melissa Wannenberg, who runs the county's 4-H program, says kids use the money from selling their livestock to buy next year's animals, and even to save for college. Without this summer's competitions and sales... I think it would have been a a huge hole in an already kind of tough year. Counties harder hit by coronavirus, like neighboring Garfield, have had to move all their contests online. Wannenberg says that even though the Mesa County Fair doesn't have its normal carnival rides, funnel cake stands, or even the public, in-person livestock shows mean she can still feel the fair's familiar atmosphere. So a lot of that is still here, (laughs) even though there's a lot more empty space (laughs) than there normally is. That comes from physical distancing measures and the fact that at least a quarter fewer families are participating in this uncertain year. 
But every kid I asked said they were glad to be here with their animals. Even though 12-year-old Danielle Long says it's also kind of sad. Yeah, because I get super attached to them. Especially Rocco, her white and black lamb. With school out the last few months, they've spent so much time together. And we've just became really close friends. Rocco's destined to be auctioned off in the next few days. The fate of most 4-H animals. It's going to be really hard when he leaves, but I will get over it when I get my next lamb. Past the goats and sheep lounging in the shade is a cavernous barn filled with cattle and giant fans keeping them cool. 18-year-old Antonio Trado Alvarez is cleaning out the hooves of his final 4-H steer. He does not have a name, but I think I think we can just call him Ted. Improv. Trado says Ted is one of the nicest steers he's ever had. He weighs as much as a truck, and so I will definitely miss him. And he thinks Ted will go far in this competition. It'd be a good end to Trado's 11 years in 4-H starting with lambs. I probably hand-raised more cheap than math homework assignments I've turned in. He just graduated high school and plans to work for a while before heading to college. Standing next to Ted's stall, he's surrounded by that earthy, pungent smell of manure. Trado calls it homey. It's kind of comforting, which is a weird thing for most people to hear. But it smells like the fair always does. There's people out and about, they're taking care of their animals, they're getting stuff done. It's a nice feeling, and it's a nice smell. A whiff of something normal in a time so alien. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. This month, the Republicans and Democrats officially picked their party's candidates for president. And there's a large group of unaffiliated voters in Colorado who are not loyal to one party or the other. Do you fall in that camp? Or maybe you're affiliated with a party but still undecided about its nominee. Are you unsure of whether you'll vote for Donald Trump, Joe Biden, or a third-party candidate? Or whether to even vote at all? How likely are you to split your vote when it comes to the U.S. Senate race, to try to ensure that no one political party has complete control? We're putting together a panel of voters to hear what candidates and issues will drive their decisions heading into Election Day. Email us at coloradomatters at CPR.org. Again, that's coloradomatters at CPR.org. After the break, a new novel that explores how the justice system can leave victims without recourse on Native American reservations. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. With a new school year approaching, more than 500 teachers, staff, students, and parents across the state have told CPR News how they're feeling about schools reopening in a pandemic. It's a complicated conversation. I do not want to go back to school. But as a single parent, do I really have an option? So eager to get back into the classroom. At the same time, I'm scared to death. Follow the conversation on Twitter at CPR News and keep listening as we tell the story here on the radio and at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. What happens when victims of crime fall through the cracks on American Indian reservations? And what recourse do they have outside of the courts? David Heska Wombly-Wyden of Denver delves into the barriers to justice for Native Americans in his upcoming novel, Winter Counts. He's a member of the Sichangu Lakota Nation. David, welcome to the program. 
It's my pleasure to be here. Winter Counts explores the complex interplay between tribal, state, and federal justice systems and what falls through the cracks. What led you to make that central to your novel? Well, I've been concerned with the problem of criminal justice on Native reservations for some time. And you can write as many social study uh, research papers as you want, but fiction and art have the chance to reach a lot more people. So as a writer, I decided to make this the central theme of the book because I've been aware of it and concerned about this for so many years. And tell me a little bit about what makes that a complex relationship. So the problem is, is on Native American reservations, you have overlapping jurisdictions between the federal government, state governments, and tribal governments. And they overlap and conflict. And this makes it exceptionally difficult to prosecute certain crimes, especially felony crimes. And what happens when it is difficult to prosecute? What makes it difficult to prosecute is a number of factors, but mostly what is known as the Major Crimes Act, a law that was passed in 1885 by the United States Congress. And the Major Crimes Act takes away the power of Native nations to prosecute crimes that occur on their own nations and involving their own people. What happens is that when a crime occurs on a Native reservation, Tribal authorities must contact the FBI and federal prosecutors and refer the case to them. However, about one-third to half of the time, federal investigators decline to prosecute these cases, which means that violent offenders are free to go out and offend again. This is obviously a massive problem on Native reservations right now. And we'll get back into your novel and how that plays into your novel in just a moment. But you grew up in Denver, and your mother was raised on the Rosebud Reservation, What was it like for you to live in two worlds, urban Denver and visiting the reservation? It was strange. Uh, I'm a Denver native. I grew up in the Swansea, Elyria neighborhood, which is one of the poorest and most challenged neighborhoods. But I love it. It's my home. And then later I moved to Aurora. And so I would live in these urban neighborhoods. And then I would travel during the summers to the reservation where I saw people even worse off than me. So it was strange to balance Uh, sort of the urban lifestyle with the reservation lifestyle. So I never felt completely that I fit in either world. And tell me a little bit more about that. In what way? Well, when I would visit the reservation, they thought, uh, the kids there thought I was just fabulously wealthy, which was hilarious, of course, because we were quite poor. And so I just, I didn't feel, again, that I was really accepted for a lot of the native kids sometimes you know, I was too urban or or because I'm mixed, I was, you know, maybe not 100% native. And then back home, I was viewed, obviously, in Denver as being, you know, one of the native kids. And so I didn't quite fit in. So it, it was, I very much felt as an outsider. But this is something that I think serves writers well. And do you still feel like you're living in two worlds? Very much so. Very much so. When I visit the reservation, you know, now it's it's different. I'm this author and all that, and and people want things from me, and they want me to do things. They want me to help them with certain causes, and I do as much as I can. So, yeah, the, the, the feeling of never fully fitting in either world is something that I think never escapes you. And how do you navigate that with your family and as a parent? That's a wonderful question. So I have two sons, ages 12 and 14, and I'm trying to raise them with as much of a Native perspective as I can in Denver, Colorado, but it's not easy. So I'm constantly probing how much do I want them to assimilate? How much do I want them to fit in? And so it's uh, it really is a tightrope. Let's go back into Winter Counts. The main character, Virgil Wounded Horse, is a vigilante of sorts. What is his role in the community? Virgil Wounded Horse is the hero of my novel. Virgil Wounded Horse is a private 
vigilante. He is a hired thug. And the way that he works into my novel is when people can't get justice, say that a young woman is raped on the reservation and the perpetrator is caught, but the federal authorities refuse to prosecute. Well, the people, the family want justice. And so they are going to hire somebody like my guy. They're going to hire Virgil Wounded Horse and they pay him a sum of money to go out and get private justice. And his sum is $100 for each bone he breaks and $100 for each tooth he knocks out. He is based on real people on my reservation. And like you said, he's based on the real people, but you haven't actually met an enforcer necessarily. So what kind of conversations are people having about enforcers? This is talked about very much in kind of hushed tones on the reservation. And so, no, I've not actually interviewed a private enforcer, but I've spoken with many people on my reservation and our neighbors, the Pine Ridge Reservation folks there. And I've learned about how they work and how they operate. It's not something that's widely publicized. It's kind of talked about very quietly, but they do exist. And that price is a real price that you've heard. It's a real price, but I I can't deny I have obviously dramatized uh, my character and his actions to make it more entertaining. So vigilante justice, that's a really complicated idea and one that's potentially it could cause harm. How do you balance that? That's a great question. So Virgil starts to question the morality of his chosen profession, and he's uncomfortable with it because he's a smart, self-aware guy. So I do think that the issue of vigilante justice is troublesome. And so that's the role of fiction is to grapple with these issues. And you're taking a look at this through fiction, but do you have personal experiences that made you want to write about this? I don't have any personal experience on the res. I've certainly been the victim of crimes here in Denver, but it's more the idea that a woman can be murdered or raped or a child can be harmed, and there's often no recourse for Native Americans on the reservation. It's this, these issues that just inflame me and made me wanted, want to write this book. In this novel, drugs, specifically heroin and methamphetamine, trickle into the reservation. Virgil's own nephew tries heroin, and that sets Virgil on a mission to track the drug cartel all the way from South Dakota to Denver. How do you see substance abuse affecting the community on Rosebud Reservation? It's a terrible, terrible problem right now on the Rosebud Reservation. Methamphetamine is the scourge of our people, and heroin, unfortunately, is making more inroads. I hate and despise those drugs, and so part of this novel is to bring awareness to the growing problem of drug addiction on reservations. We have very few resources for substance abuse counseling, and I just want people to know that it's a real problem on our lands, and so I'm hoping that this book can have a positive impact there as well. There are also negative stereotypes about Native communities and substance abuse. How do you tackle writing about drugs and addiction without strengthening those stereotypes? That is a wonderful question. And one of the choices that I made in this book is I my main character is a former alcoholic, but he is not a current alcoholic. I did not want to feed into those stereotypes of all natives being alcoholics. However, it would be foolish to turn my head away from the fact that drug abuse is a major problem on our reservations. Absolutely. And you call this book a meditation on Native identity. Can you tell me a little more about that? Sure. Virgil Wounded Horse, obviously I tapped into my own feelings of being, you know, an urban native. And so uh, Virgil struggles with being a mixed race native. He is what we call an Ayeska. Ayeska in the Lakota language is somebody who speaks white, someone who is a translator. So he is both white and native 
And he struggles with this. How does he fit into the world? And over the course of the novel, he comes to terms with his own identity, and he ultimately accepts and reclaims his native identity. That's sort of the arc of the book. And there is something important, too, about talking about a modern native identity. Very much so. Uh, natives today exist in a, a strange space where we're the invisible minority in a lot of ways. We don't show up on a lot of TV shows unless it's something from the 1800s, some traditional Western. And so we're invisible in some ways you know, I, I like to say that that we belong everywhere and nowhere. And so, you know, these were originally our lands, you know, but on the other hand, we've obviously been pushed off of them onto these tiny little spaces. And so being a native in the 21st century means how much of your own native identity do you hang on to and how much do you accommodate and assimilate into the dominant culture? The name of the book, Winter Counts, it's more than a nod to the season. Can you tell me what Winter Counts are and why you chose it as a title? Absolutely. Winter Counts is the calendar system for the Lakota people. And rather than using numbers, it uses pictographs, little pictures. And so in the novel, uh, my hero, uh, Virgil, and his sister, Marie, when they're kids, they draw little pictures to mark the seasons. Uh, so Winter Counts refers to not only the calendar system used by Lakotas, but also by the fact that winter is a hard season for many natives. And in the book, it really is. David, thank you so much for being here. It's been my pleasure. David Heskawambly Wyden's novel Winter Counts comes out August 25th. Finally, the Chicano Music Hall of Fame welcomed some new inductees recently. Among them were Los Trujillos, a family band that started more than five decades ago. The group performed to a mostly empty theater at the ceremony, with many attendees watching via Zoom and Facebook Live. Los Trujillos specializes in Tejano music, a blend of Mexican, American, and European styles. They play gigs around the state, including events for two former Colorado governors. The family patriarch, Agui Trujillo Sr., started the band in 1968. He passed away last year at the age of 93, but his kids, nephews, and grandchildren have kept the music alive. Los Trujillos performing via Zoom at Su Teatro in Denver. They were inducted into the Chicano Music Hall of Fame last month. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.